Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hello, Amber. And Haley Knoth. Hey, Amber and Alex. Guys, another week, another Trump indictment. We got one out of Georgia. We're not going to do a whole segment on that on today's show, but I did just want to say we are, of course, tracking it. We just talked about Trump and his legal woes. Uh, what was it, Alex, a week ago, a couple weeks ago? Uh, yeah, and it was related to election interference. And that's what this new Georgia indictment is also about. And so, you know, we're not focusing on that in the body of this week's show. However, we will have a few Trump-related strains in the offbeat segment of this week's show. So stick around for that. And other than that, we do have some extremely interesting news stories to get to this week. Yeah, we sure do. And it's an all-host show this week. So we each brought something really interesting to talk about. And I think the first one we're going to go over, um, Haley, you're going to talk us through it. Yes, I have some car news for us. Some vehicular news. news. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, we need to maybe come up with a better, catchier name for this segment if if it becomes Just keep driving us forward, Haley. It's fine. (laughs) So... Hyundai and Kia recently reached a $145 million deal with a group of drivers claiming that they were sold cars that are super prone to being stolen. (laughs) Not great. But this week, a California federal judge tentatively refused to sign off on that settlement. He ruled that um, a proposed software update might not actually fix the issue. There are questions around that. And he also said that he doesn't really think the deal, as its terms are right now, is fair and adequate. I know someone who just had their car stolen this week, and I'm pretty sure it was one of these. Um, oh, but no. what exactly is going on? What are the drivers alleging here? Yeah, the drivers say that stealing Hyundai and Kia vehicles is just way too easy. And incidents involving stolen vehicles have really skyrocketed in recent years. That is largely thanks to some viral videos on social media, which somehow I had not heard of these. I had heard that the cars were easy to steal, but uh, was rather horrified to hear that it's people are like throwing this this how to up on TikTok and young. It's like young people being like, look at this. You can steal this car just with a USB cable, which. Wow. Big yikes. If so. Holy smokes. Um, I should add that it is not just drivers suing the car makers. We have some insurers and a handful of U.S. cities who have also sued, claiming they too have been harmed by the spike in car theft. And that's because, you know, the cities say, well, our police departments have had to divert resources to dealing with this, and insurers obviously have to deal with more claims. Um, So the settlement, though, that we are talking about today only involves consumers But all of these cases are part of the same multi-district litigation. And the city's case also kind of comes into play here later. I'm very intrigued by this idea that all these different parties could be harmed by the ease of theft of these makes and models of cars. And I think it's interesting to sort of parse that out. But to begin at a very neat point, I think it's important to understand What are the terms of this proposed settlement that has now fallen apart, which you're saying is we just begin with the consumers here, with the car buyers. 
what was understood to be the terms of this settlement? Under the agreement, $145 million in cash payments would be made to those who suffered any out-of-pocket losses. Um, Consumers would also get that free software update to address the lack of something called immobilizer technology in the vehicles. That's a sort of electronic security designed to prevent the engine from starting with an improper ignition key. I had to look this up because my 2011 Camry uh, (laughs) cannot fathom such a thing. So if people's cars aren't eligible for that update, like my car would not be if it were a Kia or Hyundai, they would instead get up to $300 to cover things like the installation of a glass breakage alarm, anti-theft system, or the purchase of a steering wheel lock, like any of those sort of anti-theft measures. Okay, given the context of what we're talking about here, what you're describing does seem like, you know, a fairly reasonable settlement for these claimants, but the judge didn't like it. So why not? Yeah, the issues are, are, are pretty interesting. So District Judge James Selna highlighted a few different problems in that tentative decision. For one, he said the maximum reimbursement amounts for total loss and partial loss are capped at approximately $6,000 and $3,000 respectively. But those caps don't take into account that a car last year would be worth way more than a car made, you know, a decade ago. And he said, well, that's not fair. We've got to account for that. On top of that, Judge Selna said, it sounds like the software fix isn't actually a good solution. And this is where the cities come into play here, even though they're not involved in the settlement. So they have separately argued in their various cases that the update that already started rolling out in February hasn't actually abated rising car thefts. And they said that's at least in part because it's a voluntary update and less than half of the class vehicles have even received it, according to Judge Selna. So the judge said he wants to see an evidentiary hearing or some sort of tutorial where an expert explains exactly what the problem is and how the software fix addresses it. And one other thing to note here, Judge Selna did agree to certify the whole consumer class. So we have a certified class. We just don't have a deal. I think that that's like super interesting, especially since like, you know, cars are now computers like, you know, in effect. And the idea that, yeah, if it's over a decade old, any sort of thing you might sign off with for some number of repairs, it's not going to even be close. So I think that that's the idea that that is held open for future future litigation or future compensation is uh, very interesting to me. So what did, you know, and there are many many parties who are interested in the outcome of this of this dispute what did the various particular parties have to say here an attorney for the plaintiffs you know said all right i accept this decision but this is not a question in our case like this doesn't apply to the consumers this isn't on us he said you know we already spoke with the automakers we conducted an investigation into the updates efficacy And we added a provision to our settlement requiring Kia and Hyundai to launch a national campaign promoting the update. So the bottom line is, to him, if the software fix works, but doesn't solve the government problems, that's not my issue. That was his quote at the hearing. And then an attorney for the companies (laughs) similarly said, 
He thinks the judge's concerns can be addressed pretty easily in a new filing with the court that includes, you know, better details explaining exactly how the software update works, addressing any news reports or anecdotal reports that the software isn't working. Um, but Judge Selna said, look, I get it. This, this is an argument coming from the cities, not from the consumers, but I'm going to listen to anyone who has a stake in the viability of a fix. And why not just get this resolved, quote, once and for all? So looking ahead, we're waiting to see what will come of any renewed filings or a hearing on the software. All right. Super interesting story there, Haley, with a lot of components. Excited to see where that goes. Next, we are, and Haley, I, I address you specifically because we're talking baseball. I know this is an interest of yours. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Play ball. And I think we're emerging out of the dog days of baseball and into the pennant race. I think that's right, right? I think so. Yeah. yeah. Things are heating up for sure. I was yeah. just out there at a Dodger Stadium over the weekend. Bright blue sky. My boys were out there performing. You're on cruise control then because you're a Dodgers fan. Anyway, we are talking specifically in this segment about umpires who, you know, if you're a baseball fan... The umpires are sort of um, the judge, jury, and executioner on the baseball field. They oversee the proceedings. They make a decision about how the rules should be applied. And then they can eject you from the game entirely. They can dole out a punishment. They are the ones that we as fans can lay blame on if we don't want to blame a player that we really like. <laughs> and we often do. But today we are looking at a lawsuit that was filed by a baseball umpire named Angel Hernandez, who said he was denied premium assignments for postseason and World Series games based on his race, which is a serious allegation. But so far, the lawsuit has not been successful. and. Uh, Hernandez lost this week at the Second Circuit, and the Second Circuit, in ruling against him, actually nodded to his failures on the job as an umpire, you know, as part of its rationale for, you know, denying this bias claim. And um, I think that this is a good enough time to just sort of dive into this suit. It's got a lot of interesting little particles and different personalities, and I think there's lots of stuff to uh, to tease out so we can get into it. Okay, so I've been pretty silent here because, you know, baseball. <laughs> but this is an employment suit at its core. So you, yes. you won me back in, Alex. Tell me more about how this one came about and what this ump says happened to him. The suit was brought by Angel Hernandez, who is a Cuban-born Major League Baseball umpire. And he alleged in his lawsuit that he was denied promotions and very, you know, coveted assignments like the American League Championship Series and the National League Championship Series and the World Series. Like, you know, if you're a casual sports fan, you might not understand that four referees, umpires, those are very, you know, prestige assignments to have. Somebody has to officiate those games and it's, it's very sought after. And Hernandez said that he was denied those assignments based on his race. And to support his claim, Hernandez said that 
no minority umpires were appointed to the position of crew chief, which is the head of the umpire crew between 2011 and 2017. Now, in response to this, when he filed this suit, the MLB, Major League Baseball, alluded to various instances of Hernandez as a substandard umpire. And this is where, and Haley, I would kind of open the floor to you here. Um, Depending on how serious of a baseball fan you are, do you know about Angel Hernandez? Like, is he like a person on your radar? Yes, he's definitely on my radar. Yeah. And I can't recall like, a specific call that he made that I was personally affected by. <laughs> but I, cer- I can certainly remember, you know, various games where everyone was in an uproar after certain calls. Yeah, and that kind of gets to an old adage where in like high-level sports, if like a casual fan knows your name, then you're probably doing something wrong. <laughs> the, old, yes. the old thing. <laughs> and, you know, it was... It was, in fact, those assertions that the MLB was making that actually it's kind of understood that Angel Hernandez doesn't always do the best job that led to their victory at the district court level in 2021. And the New York judge that was hearing the case, you know, found in favor of the league. And this is kind of part of the Angel Hernandez MO. And one of my favorite instances of this being known is um, a very viral clip among baseball fans of Chicago White Sox announcer Ken Harrelson really laying into Angel Hernandez some years ago. Uh oh. Can't get him. He, oh, no. No. He was safe at first. No. No. Well, Angel Hernandez blew the call, and the infield being back should have cost him the game. It didn't. Right there, he's safe. He, he is does safe. not have the ball. And another blown call by Hernandez. And another blown call by Hernandez. <laughs> no! No! I mean, I don't even watch sports, but even I am like, okay, I get what happened here. This is not good. <laughs> well, certainly not the White Sox crew. Not that that means much. But anyway, <laughs> um, you know, I think that this case highlights something really interesting, which is like, if you're even a, like a somewhat serious baseball fan, you're always going to hone in on an umpire who you think sucks and, you know, is, is like not doing a good job. And then every time he's assigned to, the, to a game that your team is playing, you think, oh God, here we go. But, you know, despite all of that rancor against Angel Hernandez, the Second Circuit gave a pretty simple rubber stamp of the lower court's decision. And Hernandez is, is asserting a very serious thing about racial bias. And I don't mean to, we're having a little fun here, and I don't mean to be glib about that. But if he's trying to assert some serious disparity between minority and non-minority umpires, the judiciary's insistence here is that to the extent that any non-white umpires were denied premium assignments in in high-level postseason games, you can't prove it here based on the facts that he brought to court. And here, I think, is a pretty representative quote from the Second Circuit. 
Plaintiffs will also have to demonstrate that the disparity they complain of is the result of one or more of the employment practices they are attacking here. In this case, although there was a bottom line imbalance between white and minority crew chiefs, Hernandez has failed to establish a statistically significant disparity between the promotion rates of white and minority umpires. So, as I said before, the idea that he just honed in on crew chief appointments wasn't enough for the court here. The opinion also flagged a few instances that I'm talking about here where Hernandez was flagged for umpires are audited by the league office for bad calls they make, and then they can be subject to discipline for those bad calls on varying degrees. And then in various instances, Hernandez either declined to acknowledge it or he was very adversarial with the league office on its inquiry, all of which the league was able to credibly point to as a reason for maybe his lack of ascension in umpire assignments. So, you know, um, I think, as I say, like, these are very interesting data points that Hernandez's suit points to. But, you know, the courts are thus far not convinced that those policies rise to discrimination on a racial level. For our main story this week, we have a pretty sensitive one, but I think it's very much worth discussing. It was exclusively reported by our own Abra Co. It's about two women lawyers who told Law360 that a former Federal Trade Commission member and a George Mason University law professor, this man's name Joshua Wright, he abused his power to engage them in sexual activities. You know, it goes without saying these are really serious allegations. But before we get into what he allegedly did, can we talk a little bit more about who Wright is? Yeah, I do think it's important to understand his position in the legal community for the rest of this story. There are a few ways you may have heard of Joshua Wright. First, he was a George Mason University law professor at the Antonin Scalia Law School. Wright is also a former federal trade commissioner. He was appointed under Obama to be a commissioner to the FTC between 2013 and 2015, specializing in antitrust. Wright is currently a founding partner at something called Lodestar Law and Economics. So he is well-known in the legal community. Okay, so I mean, I think it's pretty clear. It's a person who had been in good standing and even prestigious standing in the legal community. And these are some pretty serious allegations. So I want to go through them number by number here. I want to just give space for that, so. Definitely. This yeah. is a fact-intensive story, so that's what we're going to do next. We're just going to go through Abra's great reporting and her discussions with these women and what they allege against Wright. So they center these allegations primarily around women Wright taught at George Mason Law in, starting in 2009. The first one I want to talk about is Elise Dorsey. She's a partner at Kirkland & Ellis. When she was a law student, Wright asked her to be one of his research assistants at the end of her first year of law school. That was in 2010. In that role, he asked her to join him on a trip to meet clients in California. According to Dorsey, when they arrived in California, she discovered that there was only one room with one bed where they were supposed to stay. There weren't any client meetings during the trip. 
And the morning before they were supposed to leave, Dorsey says Wright initiated sexual contact with her. From there, things spiraled pretty quickly. She says that they began a relationship, and eventually he persuaded her into having sex in his office on the law school campus. Law 360 has corroborated that story with a close friend of Dorsey, who she told about the incident at the time it happened. Dorsey's sexual contact with Wright continued throughout her time in law school, she says, and she took a job at Wilson Sonsini. Several years later, Wright took a position at that same firm as senior of counsel, and he actually became her direct manager. That's when the relationship and the sexual contact resumed again, she says. Sometime later, after she had left the firm, Wright recruited her to work at his newly launched firm of his own, that Lodestar Law and Economics. She did take that position, but after she confronted Wright about how he had engaged in sexual relationships with at least one other former student, she says Wright pulled his support from efforts to help her source fellowship funding and stopped giving her contract work from Lodestar. Near the end of 2021, she actually filed a complaint against Wright with George Mason, and that is an ongoing open investigation. Terrible allegations here. That in and of itself is horrible to hear, but sounds like we do have another student to talk about. We do. This one is named Angela Landry. Landry's currently counsel at Freshfields. Landry's story has a lot of echoes of what Dorsey described. In her first year of law school, Wright offered her a position as a research assistant. She describes a series of small, boundary-pushing interactions that went beyond what you would expect of a typical student-teacher relationship. These culminated, according to Landry, in a sexual relationship that she says she felt she was backed into, particularly because Wright often reminded her of his connections in the industry, his sway when it came to her career and future opportunities. Much like Dorsey, Landry also says Wright engaged her in sexual activity in his office at, in the law school. The relationship is also similar to Dorsey's in that it lasted throughout her time in law school. It cooled a bit after she graduated, but it began again when Wright asked Landry to serve as an attorney advisor to him at the FTC in 2015. According to Landry, during that time when their sexual relationship was on, Wright helped her secure a bunch of opportunities, speaking on panels, the ability to write certain papers that were prestigious, that kind of thing. But, and this is a quote from Landry, once he was done with me, those things stopped coming. Landry also told Law360 that she confronted Wright in 2020, and he told her he'd sought sexual relationships with countless women in professional settings. Aber did a great job reporting this story, and I do just want to like point to one thing that I think people, I think most people know this, but I think it's important to understand when you read stories about sexual impropriety of by people in power. We said this in the first anecdote that we just discussed, the idea of contemporaneous confirmation, the idea that someone said this to another person at the time, not just to the media. So we have that on at least one of these instances. I think that's something that kind of goes like by the board when people read stories like this. So I just Abra did that, and I just wanted to give her flowers on that. But on a broader level, I do want to also explore, um, not in like a sort of interrogatory way or anything, but do we have a sense of why these women came forward now? And I know this has kind of started to bubble up elsewhere as well. I think that's a fair question, Alex, because I, people always wonder sort of why things are happening now. And just to give some context about how this all happened, 
the starting incident here to the revelations was a Cleveland State University College of Law professor, Krista Laser, who publicly posted an email she says Wright sent her in 2021. In the email, he asked her out on a date after she met with him in a purely professional way to discuss faculty job opportunities at George Mason. According to Laser, she went public with the email after hearing through the legal grapevine about alleged misconduct toward other women in the profession, and it made her really evaluate the experience she had had. And in turn, after that became public, that led Dorsey and Landry to come forward. Landry in particular said something to Law 360 that I think really encapsulates the feelings around this. Here's her quote. I suffered silently for a really long time. I was ready to accept suffering silently alone for the rest of my career, but I can't just sit back and let it continue. How has Wright responded to these allegations? I, you know, they're very, obviously very serious. They are just allegations. I do want to make that very clear. So Wright has announced a couple of things. First, he said he's leaving George Mason's faculty, uh, but he vehemently denies any wrongdoing. His attorney did release a statement. Here's what the statement says. All allegations of sexual misconduct are false. These false allegations are being made public after unsuccessfully demanding millions of dollars behind closed doors. We look forward to total vindication in court. So you can't really get much stronger than that denial. We will see how this continues to play out as we move forward. But certainly chilling allegations from women in the legal profession, especially those at law school, who are vulnerable in many ways to people in power. We like to end our show with something offbeat. And Alex Lawson, what do you have for us? Okay, so as we said at the top, there was another... Trump indictment regarding the former president's alleged role in election interference. We talked about that last week, and there are similar allegations regarding this Georgia indictment. This is from within the state of Georgia, and I wanted to just highlight one thing. I mean, that's a serious allegation. We will talk about it in the coming weeks, I'm sure, when there are developments worth talking about, but One thing I wanted to point out is that unlike the other indictments, there were many other people indicted apart from Trump, I think 18 co-defendants. One of them is former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani. And this all, um, much of this revolves around a RICO charge. And I just wanted to note that uh, a lot of other legal publications, I don't think we wrote about it, but many other people did, is that A lot of these charges hinge on a RICO violation, which is a 19, I think, 60s era statute that was meant to target organized crime. Sure, people think about gangsters. Exactly. And Rudy Giuliani, both when he was the mayor of New York and then prior to that, when he was the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, he prosecuted a lot of RICO cases uh, against New York mobsters or, you know, alleged mobsters. And I just was very uh, tickled by the idea that there were lots of both, and I'm not saying these people are noble or do whatever they do, but there were lots of convicted mobsters and also mobster attorneys talking to the media the other day. And they were just, they just thought it was funny that he was now rung up on RICO charges. This happened 
happens in some other legal contexts too, though. I always, just because employment is my one of my specialty areas, I'm yes. always really surprised when, say, an employment-focused law firm or one with a big employment practice has internally some discrimination complaint or yeah. some yes. leave complaint or something like that. Yeah, that does happen. Um, you know, hoisted by your own petard or whatever you want to yeah, say. Absolutely. Uh, another weird one. I When I was in law school, one of the years, I was a law clerk for a union. And every now and then, I'd come across something and doing research for them on various cases where a union whose own union employees were unionized by another union would get oh, like yeah. an unfair labor practice or like something like that. So these weird little things do happen. Yeah, the Russian nesting doll of uh, yeah. criminal uh, infractions. Anyway, uh, the other thing I wanted to talk about more substantively is that related to the special counsel Jack Smith's federal election interference probe of Donald Trump, there were many documents unsealed this week about Jack Smith's office to get access to Trump's Twitter account, now called an X account. Uh. That's a whole other thing. Haley, I agree with you entirely. <laughs> I, was, I was corrected by the copy desk this week. I don't really want to get into that right oh, now. But no. the, the idea that you say X, formerly X, known as Twitter. Formerly known as Twitter. Uh, whatever. It's like print. That's, it's like that symbol, the artist formerly known as print. Yeah, exactly. And then you just kind of have to do that for, I guess we'll do that for another six months or something, or maybe a year. Anyway, <laughs> the point is that the government was trying to get at Trump's Twitter history. And Trump, of course, as everybody knows, was a very prolific Twitter user. And so it stands to reason that the special counsel would want to know about the communications that were going on on that platform, both in the run-up to the election and, the, and then in the run-up to the certification of those votes, which culminated in the January 6th riot, uh, et cetera. Anyway, the reason we're talking about it now is that this came up in the special counsel and Twitter lawyers back and forth about access not only to Donald Trump's tweets, but drafts and direct messages, but also more saliently, fleets. And if you're a real online sicko like me, you remember fleets. We were talking about this at the production meeting yesterday. Amber, I consider you part of the <laughs> online legion, but you don't know. You don't know fleets. I'm online. I am online. But I'm somewhere like one step behind you, Alex, because I don't remember fleets. Yeah. See, I, I, and I'm in the middle. I'm like a mid-step behind because I remember <laughs> fleets, but I don't remember how it worked. <laughs> I remember it was strange and I myself never indulged. The only thing to know about fleets, and it's not important to know them because they're gone now, but this was Twitter's attempt to compete with like Snapchat stories, Instagram stories. These were temporary videos or images you could upload to your profile and then they would be deleted after, I, I, I assume, 24 hours. I mean, in fairness, the best part of the story, I think, is that they're called fleets. It's right in lockstep with tweets, but also fleeting fleets. It's, well, I love it. Yeah. And that gets right to what we're talking about here, because the general counsel was considering or trying to get all data related to this. And then we get to this incredible exchange between 
and I have to stress this, the actual court, when the special counsel was trying to get this search warrant for Trump's Twitter account, and then actual lawyers for Twitter. And the judge asked one of the Twitter lawyers, what precisely is fleets? And the Twitter lawyer said, it's, uh, <laughs> this is a direct quote from the transcript. It is similar to tweets. And I don't know more than that, Your Honor. Oh my which God. I think is very, <laughs> which is very analogous to the way you guys have answered these questions today. <laughs> Look, I mean, should I be billing? I feel like I'm giving real high-level answers here. And then again, I can't, I can't stress it enough. Uh, the, the Twitter's own lawyer is a guy from Wilmer Hale. He says in open court, I had not heard of fleets till this morning. Um, and then <laughs> much like we were just discussing, the court and this lawyer discuss, um, they say like, it's a vanishing tweet, a vanishing tweet. And then, and then the Twitter lawyer says, I guess fleet, that makes sense. <laughs> Connecting the dots oh, right there. Like gosh. in right open court. Us. Yes, exactly. The you idea of them like <laughs> the difference ahead. between yeah. the pro se offbeat recording and open court is razor thin in the segment. <laughs> Apparently, I've said yeah. all the same things as that attorney. Yes. Um, so they went back and forth on that. Um, and just the okay, so here's the the court and then uh, the judge says, so it's a vanishing tweet. And do you know whether that vanishing tweet or fleet functionality was active on this count? And are you able to tell that? And he's got so many questions about this. Um, and they go back and forth on that for a little while. And then again, this is, a dis this is an exchange that I'm describing between the judge and Twitter's lawyer. And then, crucially, the special counsel's office pipes in and says, second, I have never heard of fleets in part of any discussion that we have had. I don't know if that is information in this account. It may or may not be. It still will be relevant. It still will be responsive, which means, again, this is a time when they're trying to get a search warrant for the account. So if I can kind of digest that for you, that's the special counsel saying, I don't know what fleets are either, but we want them. If you got them, we want them for the search warrant. Honestly, this is what happens oh, when Lord. the the not chronically online all get yeah. together, discuss something chronically online. And there's part of me that's a little comforted that people exist. They're like, you know what? I'm not sure what fleets are. There's something yeah. wholesome about that to me. I have, I have fond memories of fleets. Uh, they were only around. I don't think they were only around for like a few months in 2021. At least, like much of Twitter, it was depending on who you were following, if they were good or bad sure, or whatever. of course. A lot of people I follow just put their pictures of their pets on there, and I'm never going to complain about that. <laughs> yeah, that's um, the best case scenario. But yeah, you know, fleets were going to be lost to time and probably still will be, but I'm just highlighting it here. To, so they have one more moment in the sun in the context of the uh, <laughs> prosecution of the former president. Does this offbeat section now just like disappear? <laughs> no, no. You can always go back and listen to this. <sighs> okay. and, uh, well, then I'm going to have to formally end it at least. Yeah. Yes, I think so. Okay. Well, thanks for that, Alex. I uh, feel a little bit better informed about internet history. All right. Yeah, glad as always. And I'll say thanks, Haley. Thank you.
I'd also like to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. Our contributing reporters this week, Gina Kim, Elaine Bersenio, and Abrico. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, it'd really help us out if you left a five-star review and a written review wherever you're listening right now. That's so other people can find our show. And if you want to know more about anything we've talked about, check out our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and see you back here next week.